man in the boondocks Lord have mercy can't help being man in the boondocks Hey, and welcome to Bad in the Boondocks. As always, I am Stanley. And I'm Drew. And we are surely glad to be here with you today. It's been a long day, but just one mention. We do have our first. We are now on Patreon. Our Patreon page is live. There are three tiers. Each tier has different perks and benefits. Why don't you tell them the tiers? We have our wee, wee boondockers, we have our growing boondockers, and we have our full-grown boondockers. So go out, go to patreon.com, um, search for Bad in the Boondocks, and it'll bring up our page. You can join there. We have our first bonus patron-only episode out, and it's a good one. We're excited about our Patreon page, and we are hoping that you will join us because we have a lot of interesting and new things that we're going to add to patrons only. All right. Yeah. We both have a story today, and we're going to get right on into it. With you going first. All right. Let me take me a sip. Moisten the throat. Okay. And I'm going to do the interesting case and tragic case of Stephen and Carrie Stainer. Oh. The two brothers of the Stainer family are both famous, both tied to the wonder of Yosemite National Park, and both new unspeakable horror. Where is that at? Yosemite National Park. Yeah, is that like in California or something? I think so. Fun fact for you. If it's there correct, it is. you might want to hurry is. up and look that up. Well, you keep on talking. Okay. You keep on talking, and then I'll come back to you. Stephen Stainer captured the heart of a nation when he helped another child escape from a pedophile. After enduring years of abuse and not wanting to see the child experience the same fate. Carrie Stainer will forever be known for marring Yosemite's reputation as a peaceful retreat with the brutal murders of four innocent women. And guess what? What? It is in California, and from the pictures, it looks really good. Mm-hmm. It looks really Yes, yeah, pretty. It's a very good place to visit. The Stainer family, made up of the two brothers, their three sisters, and parents Kay and Delbert, lived in the secluded farming town of Merced, California. Delbert. (laughs) Surrounded by almond groves and peach orchards. In the shadow of Yosemite National Park, Carrie looked out for Stephen, according to Carrie Stainer's former classmate, Jack Bungart. He loved his brother. Martin Purdy, a friend of the brothers, remembered Carrie as a nice guy. Martin says he was kind of a quiet guy. Our days would be just get on our bikes in the morning and then go to the park, hang out with our friends or skateboard. The boys were still in elementary school when a man named Kenneth Parnell entered the picture. Parnell worked at the Yosemite Lodge, located about two hours away from the Stainer home. He befriended a co-worker named Irvin Murphy to assist him in a vile act that would shake the family forever. 
It was a sleety, wintry day. He and Irvin Murphy got into Ken's big white Buick and drove into Merced. His big white Buick? Yep. <laughs> it was December the 4th of 1972. Then seven-year-old Stephen Stainer was walking home from school on Highway 140 when Parnell and Murphy were driving towards town. Stainer was lured into the vehicle and abducted. Kenneth Parnell stopped his car and went to a payphone, and then he came back and he told Stephen, your parents, I just spoke to them, they no longer want you. So you know that just probably devastated little Stephen. Well, yeah. Merced was the lead police department, and so they really mounted a large effort to search. And they searched, and they searched, and there was just nothing Carrie was very upset when Stephen was abducted or went missing. I mean, um, based on this national park, it is pretty big. So it would be very difficult to find somebody out in here. Yeah, but he wasn't in the national park. Oh. <laughs> well, then, Are you even listening? Well, then never mind. Well, I was busy looking this stuff up. and I'm... Okay, well, Carrie is the one that's going to be the Yosemite killer. Okay. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you get on with it. Okay. For years, Parnell traveled around California with Stephen. Stephen Stainer had a new father figure. It was Kenneth Parnell, who by day was his father, and by night, he was his rapist. Stephen was told his new name was going to be Dennis Parnell, and he was even enrolled in school. Against the odds, he flourished there. He had a great personality, said Lori Duke, who dated Stephen in high school, but knew him as Dennis. He was spunky, she said. While Stephen was a freshman at Mendocina High School, some 300 miles to the south, his older brother, Carrie, was an upperclassman at Merced High School. There was a slight pall over on Carrie because he was the kid who had his brother kidnapped. What does that have to... He just, like in the shadow, everybody knew him as the child that the brother was kidnapped. Okay. Carrie Stainer was a very good cartoonist, and he was voted most creative at school. Stainer, however, he always wore a hat. He had a horrible tick. He would yank his hair out. So he actually wore a hat, so it would cover up all the bald spots. Well, it's not very good. Carrie Stainer also exhibited some behaviors that made others uncomfortable, including as he later admitted, exposing himself to his sister's friend one night while she spent up the night. It seemed as though he had a compulsion with trying to get close to women or be sexual with them, but he was unable to develop any sort of interpersonal relationship with any woman. You had one brother who had been subjected to just unspeakable horror for years, but by all appearances to everybody else, he was a happy-go-lucky kid and had a girlfriend. 
Then you had the other brother who was left at home, and he had no interest in girls and no interest in people. He wasn't just a loner. He was like a creepy loner. Mm-hmm. By the time Stephen was 14, he had been abused and manip- manipulated by Parnell for seven years. At some point, Parnell and Stephen together realized that Stephen was growing up and that he was no longer going to be controlled by Parnell. Parnell wanted another kid that was younger that he could sexually assault. In February of 1980, Parnell decided to capture a new younger boy. He paid a local kid to ride with him to the little town of Ukiah, California. And he put the high school kid out on the street to go find him a boy. And he found five-year-old Timothy White walking home from school. Wait a second. So he paid like a teenager? Yeah. To ride with him to right. go find a younger boy right. for him. Yes. Okay. For two weeks, Stephen watched Timothy suffer, suffer the separation from his family. Then he took matters into his own hands. His high school girlfriend said he later told her what happened. He said that he was not going to let that child go through what he had already been through. So he knew if he didn't take care of it now, it would just get worse. On March 1st of 1980, Stephen waited until Parnell was at work. Then he fled with the new younger boy, Timothy. The two hitchhiked to Ukiah, California. It was dark and Timmy couldn't remember where he lived. So Stephen figured that the best thing to do was to take him to the police station. Not only was Stephen able to explain to police what happened to him and Timothy, he was also able to tell them his real name was Stephen, not Dennis. Telling police, I know my first name is Stephen, became the most iconic moment in Stephen's remarkable story. Later, it became the title of a book and a television movie. Stephen was a national hero. He returned to Merced triumphant. Within days of returning home, he was on Good Morning America. On Good Morning America in March 1980, Stephen shared with former host David Hartman that it felt great to be home. He told Hartman that his parents didn't change that much, but his brothers and sister, they changed a lot. He never recognized either one of them. At a press conference outside the Stainer house, everyone was smiling. There was a lot of jubilation, but if you look in the background, there's something worth noting, and it's Carrie in his baseball cap, and he's not smiling at all. Carrie, as the older brother, had a very strange relationship now with his youngest brother, Stephen, who was getting all of this attention and who was a different person. The brothers were four years apart. They shared a room, but they did not get along. Stephen didn't understand the rules that he was now expected to live by because he had been allowed to drink, smoke, whatever he wanted to do. Yeah. The first year was pretty hectic. For seven years, Carrie said that he had been supposedly an only child, but now he had to complete, compete with his brother and three sisters. Stephen also struggled in high school where he was bullied for the tragic abuse he had endured. 
Flynn said his sexuality was constantly under attack. In addition to his fraught life at home and at school, Stephen, still just a teenager, also had to face Parnell in court. Mm-hmm. Parnell was convicted on kidnapping and false imprisonment charges. He was sentenced to seven years in prison, but he only served five. That was less time than he had had Stephen kidnapped for. Exactly. That's pretty sick. Yeah. It was outrageous. There was out-and-out fury over the sentence. Ken Parnell went back to what he had been doing for years. He found someone else to help him find another boy, but he was caught, and he was sent to prison again, and he died there in 2008. While Stephen was grappling with life after his escape, his brother was out of high school with his own troubles. Carrie, after high school, seemed a little lost, like he didn't know where he was going. He was known to take refuge in nearby Yosemite, where he'd driven up and got lost in nature. Whatever demons were clamoring around in his head, by being naked, by smoking pot, he could find the peace that he so desperately needed. Stephen Stainer's fame was short-lived. He grew up, got married, and he had two kids. He was very proud of who he was. He was just very well-grounded for a person that had gone through what he had gone through. However, tragically, Stephen Stainer was killed in 1989 in a motorcycle accident. He was 24 years old. That's not very fair. It doesn't seem fair, no. Shortly after... Stephen's death, he died before his kidnapper. Exactly. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. That's why I said uh, it's not very fair. Shortly after Stephen's death, an uncle with whom Carrie was staying, was very close with, was shot and killed in a home they shared together. By this point, Carrie Stainer was suffering. He had had a couple of nervous breakdowns, and one was pretty violent. He stated that he felt like jumping in a truck, driving it through the shop and killing the boss and killing everyone in the office and then torching the place. Instead of seeking mental health treatment, Stainer ended up taking refuge in Yosemite. In 1997, Stainer got a job as a handyman at the Cedar Lodge, seven miles from the gate of the National Park. Working at Cedar Lodge gave Kerry access to his beloved Yosemite. His idea of serenity was to maybe smoke a little pot and to sunbathe naked. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Stainer had been at Cedar Lodge for two years when Carol's son, her teenage daughter Julie's son, and her friend Silvina Pelosa came to stay one night in February of 1999. That night, he talked his way into their room under the guise of fixing a leak because he was the handyman. Yeah. But then he sexually assaulted both girls and brutally murdered all three. The search for the women was the largest ever mounted in Yosemite at any time. After several weeks, the bodies of all three women were discovered. Five months passed without another killing, and the community surrounding Yosemite was lulled into a sense of calm, especially when the FBI announced that those they believed responsible for the murders were in custody. In fact, the wrong men were in custody. But on July the 21st of 1999, when Stainer saw Joey Armstrong 
a 26-year-old naturalist at Yosemite, taught children about nature in the park. Something instantly changed with him. He was ready to kill again. After her friends reported her missing, police found signs of a struggle at her cabin, and a half a mile away, they found her body. Her head, which had been removed, was found several feet away in the water. There wasn't really much time for the police to speculate on whether this was related. Because um, right now, Yosemite Park has about a thousand population. Right now. That's all? And back then, I don't know how much it was, but only about a thousand, so there couldn't be too many you know it was less than that. suspects. I guess you could say. Well, but you have all the visitors, though. Yeah, which it, it would be less then than now, I know that. But Stainer left a substantial amount of evidence in and around Armstrong's cottage, but police initially started searching for him because his vehicle had been seen near her place, and they thought he would be a natural witness to interview. Authorities had already interviewed him once before about the other three murders, but at the time he hadn't raised any red flags. FBI agents caught up with Stainer at a nudist colony, where he had fled to after Armstrong's murder. After he was brought in for questioning, he can... I wonder if they gave him clothes. I assume so. He confessed to murdering Joey Armstrong describing the brutal killing as if he was reading a soup label. Soon after, he confessed to murdering Carol's son, Julie's son, and Sylvina Pelosa. Now, this is a quote. I went to ask if Carrie wanted to talk, said FBI agent. I want you to get a hold of some producers in Los Angeles. I want a movie of the week made about my story. That's what carries him. There was a movie made about Steven Stainer. He wanted the same treatment. He wanted the world to take note. Yeah, but he also did way good than him. Yeah, I know. Well, and he had tragedy put on him. Exactly. It's difficult for me to picture what Carrie has done in knowing Steve because their personalities are completely opposite, Steven's former girlfriend said. The only time Steve would kill anything like a fish is because we were going to eat it. You know what I mean, she said? I wouldn't think that he would think of himself as one, but he is a hero. For the last 20 years, Stainer has been on death row at San Quentin Prison. He's 58 years old now. Of course. And that's what I got on him. But he's never been remorseful about killing or anything like that. In fact, he even asked for some child porn. And he would <laughs> tell them. So, yeah, and he would confess. Okay. So what you got? Who you got? What you got? Who you got? When you got? Why you got? Okay. Um, I've got Madame LaLaurie. Madame it's pretty, it's pretty old, but, I mean, it's popular. Oldie but goodie. Oldie but goodie. I guess you could say that. Well, Madame LaLaurie 
was born as Mary Delphine McCarty on March 19th, 1787 in New Orleans. She you was said New Orleans. I sure did. She was the child of Louis Bartholomew, her father, and her mother was Mary Jean. Her father immigrated from Ireland to the U.S. in 1730. Her mother was French, and they lived in the white community in New Orleans. The McCarty family was very wealthy and moved from France to New Orleans to engage in different profitable ventures. The McCarty family was very broad, ranging from rich merchants, army officials, and slavers. Madame belonged as one of the five children of the family. At the age of 13, Madame was a very pretty girl, which did not make it hard for her to find a decent groom. In June of 1800, at the age of 13, she had her first marriage with a high-ranking Spanish official named Don Raymond de Lopez E. Angelo, which she got married at 13. That's how it was back then. Back then, yeah, you got married pretty young. You was popping out babies by the time you was 15. Exactly. He was appointed General of Spain shortly after the marriage, which made her one of the most powerful women in the state because most of New Orleans was run by Spanish occupation at the time. Don was called back to Spain in 1804, but on his way, he passed away mysteriously. Many people had different claims for his death, but his death is still unsure. On Don's way back to Spain, Madame had a daughter, and after his death, she returned back to New Orleans. The next four years, she spent her time living in her mansion in New Orleans. She then got married for the second time in 1808 to Jean Blanca. He was also very wealthy, working as a merchant, banker, and lawyer. After they got married, they bought a house in Royal Street and gave birth to four children. And this marriage as well did not last long when Jean passed away eight years later in 1816. One of the daughters of her second marriage was deformed and had problems with her spinal cord. She was sent to Dr. Louis LaLaurie for treatment to fix her, but was unsuccessful. The doctor was attracted to Madame and proposed to her. He was 20 years younger than her. But that didn't matter, and they married in 1825. He's a doctor, though. Yeah. Doctor, come here, doctor. Neighbors call reporting loud noises coming from their house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wonder what that could be. If the house is a shaking, don't come. On. <laughs> don't come knocking. She became infamous for the bad treatment of the slaves she owned. She, like many others, owned slaves, and she kept them in the slave quarters outside of the Royal Street Mansion. They were, to, they were hired to do little jobs around the house. Rumors spread that the slaves were very mistreated and lived in fear. One time, one of the slaves accidentally caught a tangle while brushing her owner's hair. So Madam got a whip and tried to hit her with it, but by this time the slave ran into the attic and climbed on the roof. There she lost her footing and fell to her death. The neighbor of Madame witnessed her being on the roof and slipping only to hear the loud fall below. From this instant, she had to pay $300 and give up nine of her slaves, which of course she bought back not long after. 
One of the slaves was scared of punishment that would happen to him, so he threw himself out of the third-story window and fell to his death. There were mixed feelings about this, and people said that um, she was sweet to them, and then more others said that she was evil to them. A fire broke out in Madame's Royal Street Mansion, which started in the kitchen. When police arrived, they found a 70-year-old black woman tied to the stove, claiming she started the fire because she feared the punishment Madame was going to inflict on her. So these are a lot of slaves, like, you know that the punishment's way worse than the yeah. slaves actually killing themselves. Uh, yeah. Torture. Yeah. The fire would not slow down, so some of the bystanders, they tried to intervene, but Madam and her husband refused to let anyone into their house. So the crowd, they took it upon themselves to break down the door and enter, enter the home. <laughs> <laughs> what they found when they entered the home was shocking. They found seven brutally tortured slaves with some of their limbs deformed and some of them, their intestines were pulled out of their bodies and tied around them, which caused their death. Mm. Yeah. The wild mob broke hell on the mansion after finding out this news they destroyed any possessions that remained of hers that the fire did not get. The, sl the slaves that were not brutally killed were sent to the police station where they gave their accounts of what they went through. The crowd was even more furiated after they were sent for public viewing. So these slaves that were already beaten were sent to be viewed in public. After it was all over, there was basically nothing left of the mansion, and it was left in ruins. After the fire, Madame knew not to get caught, so she fled. After this, there's not too much about what she was doing, but we do know that after the fire in 1834, she flew to Paris, France, where she spent the rest of her life. What is known to this day is that she died on no December 7th, 1849. Oh, she was evil. I was looking at some of the pictures. Yeah, and um, some counts say that she could have actually tortured and killed over 100 slaves, but that's not 100% accurate, so I didn't... Yeah, that seems a little much. Yeah, so I didn't put that in there, but there were some accounts that said that she could have. Well, even if it was She's too, definitely evil enough to yeah. do it. Oh, yeah. All right, well, that's what we got for you today. Just a reminder, go to our new Patreon page. Go to Help Patre us out, yeah. Go to patreon.com, look for Bad in the Boondocks, you'll find our page, and find out how you can subscribe there to one of three tiers. And it not only helps us out, but it helps you out as well, dear exactly. listener. Exactly, you get other perks you get and stuff. These, you get perks, and more perks are coming soon. So perk yourself up. Be perky. <laughs> Till next time, I have been Stan. And I've been Drew, and we'll see you next time. See ya. See ya.